Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. The series on Nehemiah, um, and we're going to be delving into chapter 2 today. Um, I want to preface this because I know that we've got um, people from all walks here and backgrounds and intelligences and knowledges, and I'm thinking a very, very narrow path. You know, I want to talk about something in particular today. Um, but we're going to kind of canvas the chapter, and uh, I'm excited. I'm excited to, where, to see where it goes and to hear what the Lord has to say. I'm excited to hear what the Lord has to say. That's an <laughs> indicator. So let's just pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this Sunday. We thank you for this country. We thank you for this church, Father. We thank you for City on a Hill, Father, and your blessing over it, your, your peace over it, Lord, your protection over it, Lord. We thank you for the thousands and innumerable ways that you have blessed us and covered us and kept us and raised us up. And we're just, just so grateful, Lord, and we're expected of you, Lord. We want to join in your work. We want to follow your footsteps. We want to hear your call on our lives, Father. We want to see and to be part of greater and bigger things, things that far exceed ourselves. We just thank you, Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity just to hear your word and break bread and Sing our praises to you, Lord, and stare one another in the eye and see your love. We just thank you. We give you this time, and uh, we're expectant to hear from you today, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So, last week. Who was here last week? Part one, chapter one. Good. Most of you guys. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you, go to the podcast, listen to the sermons, Encourage your friends that have, that have missed a Sunday to keep in track. I also encourage you to read the chapters. Read the book of Nehemiah. If you read one chapter a week, so be it. Just stay in the one chapter so you know and you're already in the vein of what's going to be coming forward. You're not going to be lost. Um, it can only help. It only enhances. And really, I'm telling you from experience, especially with the Old Testament, it is endless. It is absolutely endless. One door opens up to like five other ones, and the tree just keeps growing. So again, um, I'm going to do my best with this today. So I would just like to say, I guess, you know what, I guess we're going to have to start off with, we're going we're to jump right into uh, the first slide here. And I want, if you would, turn to your Bibles. Uh, we're going to go to Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 11. And I'm just going to read, you can look at the map, you can read along with the Bible, and we're just going to kind of set ourselves up for where we're going right now. I'm reading out of the New King James uh, Version, and here we go. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, and I and a few men with me, I told no one what my God had put on my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me, except for the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate, to the serpent well and the refuse gate, also called the dung gate, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates, which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. Then I turned back and entered by the valley, entered by the valley gate, and so returned. So what do we have here? We have Nehemiah. He's traveled to Jerusalem. This is the king's cupbearer, and we're going to get into what he had done with the king. But he goes, he hangs out in Jerusalem for three days, silent, quiet. 
know, some of the Bible theologians say he was meeting with Ezra, kind of probably talking about a plan, talking about what's been going on. Because as we know, Ezra's already been there now about 13 years working on the temple. So Nehemiah has had this three days of silence, and in the night, he slips out to just kind of take a view of the gates and the walls, which he's been called to now go and rebuild. And if you're looking at it, you can see the valley gate down the bottom, kind of like the Florida Peninsula there, and he's just kind of traveling around this area, and we know that he goes back out the valley gate and into the valley. I imagine him sitting there maybe looking at it. I, I, for me personally, I, I could see him almost weeping or talking to the Lord, exactly, all right, Lord, talk to, what exactly am I doing here? What's the plan here? He's getting infused. I think he's getting angry. I think he's going through a number of things as he's assessing his home. Now, again, Nehemiah is removed. This, this all happened about, what, 141 years, you said? The walls all came down? So we have this lag time that goes on. And again, we're going to get back to that. But he's come out of the gate, and he's just looking. And I think that this is important. And I want to just go to some questions here. I love questions. I love questions. Where do you keep what is valuable? And what I, what, these questions are designed to say, what do you do with a city without walls? What do you do with a home without walls? I want you to make it personal. And this message is as much as it is personal as it is corporately for us as a Christian body and a church. But where do you keep what is valuable to you? Your gems, the things that you love. How do you protect your world without walls? If you have a loved one or children and you're sleeping outside every day in suburbia or a city, how do you protect them? What do you do? What is that, what is that life like when home is evaporated? Here's a question for you. Is there a place that you long to go deeply? Think about it for a second. As a matter of fact, everybody, take a deep breath. Is there someone that, somewhere that is special to you? Here's another side. Are you bored? Anybody depressed? Saddened? Have you ever felt like you've been taken advantage of? Robbed? Wronged? Put down? Before in the past, or even right now, seeing a low moment. Oh, a little heavy, Naeem. <laughs> We're going to lighten up. Are you looking for meaning? You know, there is a good question to ask everybody, and I'd like you to answer it. You can answer it in your own heads. Why did you come to Sunday today? Why are you here? Seriously. Think about it. Did you come for somebody else? Did you come to hear the word of the Lord? Did you come to make sure that you showed up today? Why did you come? See, these are all questions that we have to answer and ask ourselves as we go through Nehemiah, as we hear what's going to be coming from this pulpit and what's happening in chapter 2. This is a buster call. The entire chapter, the entire book really of Nehemiah, for me personally, is like a war cry. Not everybody responds to that war cry. You know, there are people that are in touch with their state that are able to respond to it. And I think when we see Nehemiah look at the walls, as that is a physical and natural thing to do as a leader, to assess, I think as a, in the spiritual sense for our own selves, 
If we look at our houses, we, we, we stand outside. Sometimes you guys will stand outside in the yard and just say, all right, I've got to weed that bed. I've got to trim that tree. Dear goodness, I've got to paint the place. You know what I mean? We have to do the same thing internally as well. Because let's just say, for argument's sake, somebody comes along and says, well, do you need any help to fix anything up? Well, if I don't have an assessment, I wouldn't know what to fix. I wouldn't know where to, to direct you. But this is an in inward walk as well. So let's go back to the Jews. We know that the Jews, their home has been destroyed. They have been scattered. They have been killed. The best and brightest of them have been taken to different places and being used as servants, right? Now we have Nehemiah. We have this attractive, handsome, articulate, charismatic man who is now the cupbearer of the king. Nehemiah's life. Let's just talk about his life. Does he want for anything, anybody? Does he want for anything? He works for the king. Close. He had a nice room. He had money, nice clothes. He had gold. Life-wise, as far as governing his world, he's probably doing pretty well. Yes? No? Yeah. All right. There we go. You got to work with me. You got to feed me here. <laughs> but these Jews were now scattered. They were assimilated. They were in pockets of groups. So we have these people now that are, that are in this Babylonian empire, right? And they're living amongst the Babylonians. They have their faith. They're Jews. They're identified as Jews. And some pockets get together. Some pockets worship. But this is what I like to... This is, this is the picture that I got. They have what I'd like to call a cellophane existence. You see, they're in there. They're in this empire. And they're getting together. But they have like a bubble around them. Like, you know, it's it just... They can't really get out of it. They can push through a little bit. You take a couple risks here, take a couple risks there. But at the end of the day, as we, when we go back and talk about Nehemiah, if they were out of line, let's, let's just say if Nehemiah was pouring or sipping wine for the king sad, he could be killed. Whoa, that's a very, very fine line. And what we know about cellophane, what we do with cellophane, is we put it over food in order to preserve it. Right, so the air doesn't get to it. But we also know for us as a living creature, if we get cellophane put over ourselves, well, we'll suffocate and die. You know, there's a suffocation going on with these people. And I think that it's important for us to identify our own selves in this. We live in a very, very, very comfortable society. We all live not with oppression or somebody at our door about to whip us or put a gun to our head. We live very, very, very comfortably. The, the risk that Nehemiah took here was so big in the sense that he was going to leave all of that comfort, take this jump out, and step forward into something unknown, trusting wholly on the Lord. Now, that is an experience that most of us, we have moments and pockets of that, but we don't really jump after. Think of it this way. The Jews are God's called people, right? The Jews, by blood, they're called people. Done. I'm called by God. For us Christians, we've been saved. Done. I'm going to heaven. Wonderful. What about the rest of it? See, and this is the buster call. The buster call goes like this. You can accept your salvation and stay there, or you can be enamored and wrapped up and give everything for something much, much greater. And in that process, a greater glory will come through you. You know, we look at everything as far as just me. It's got, you know, I, I, I need this, I need that. I'm going to make my decisions based out of my need 
in my immediate sense because I don't want to make any sacrifices. You know, we can talk about this. Actually, we should talk about this. You know, I've been in this church for a very long time. I am no, you know, holy roller in any, in any regard. I'm saying it in this respect. In my lifetime, I know very, very clearly, and I can list you a string of examples of sacrifices that I have made. Now, I'm not talking about my sacrifices, but when I look across the aisle and I look at certain people in this audience in the eye, I can look at them and say that they've made similar sacrifices to me. I know their walk because they've also sacrificed alongside of me in the same, for, for this argument's sake, church, the, sa- the same mission, the same town, or whatever, the same mission for the Lord. There are sacrifices that are made. Now, I identify with that person probably a little bit closer than somebody that I would say just is enjoying the ride, which is fine. No judgment. There's no judgment there. Here's the difference. The people that sacrifice, those of us that accept this buster call for more, to live with a greater glory, to really dine and sit next to the Lord, to take those chances. Now, you're saying, well, I don't really have a chance. That's fine. Seek those chances. Lord, where do you want to use me? Being obedient, there is something greater and deeper. There's a, a deeper cultivation that goes on. It gives us power. It gives us a different type of life. It's not always an easy life, but there is a satisfaction that is so sweet. So here's the story. We have Nehemiah. We find him. Everything offered provided for, yet we find a man who is depressed and heartsick and looking, for God, looking to God for comfort and direction on a matter that happened a very, very long time ago. There's a sensitivity in this man that was going about business as usual, but there was a sensitivity in this man that was going on in him so that when he heard the news, he responded immediately. And his immediate response was not action, was not telling everybody, he just went to prayer. Lord, what is this? What is this hole in my heart? What is going on? I can't not think about it. I can't not shake it. I, oh, this is, this is not living. I'm living a cellophane life. Four months of praying and fasting for the right time to show whether or not he could be sad. What? You mean you can't even... There you go. We all have those days. If he had done that, he could have been killed or just cast out, you know, working in the stables. Big difference. But we have to draw the parallel to ourselves. If we only look at it as, well, that was Nehemiah's day, and that's really cool, and that's great Bible history, but that doesn't really speak to me. Well, what I am saying to you very, very simply is, if you heard the call, would you respond? If you heard the call, to take that next step, and it flicked your heart, because that was the mission that you know that you were supposed to, would you respond? What would you give up to be part of it? These are the questions we're going to be wrestling with. All right, I don't want to stay heavy. Okay. This is quick. Very, very quick. Let's talk about his enemies. So we have Sanballat, the Horonite, basically an official. He had charge of the army and the troops. Tobiah, the Ammonite. The Ammonites were a natural enemy of the Jews, but related by marriage. Uh, he had Jewish friends, and he provided these guys intel. And then there's <laughs> Geshem, the Arabian. I just call him the S-Man. There's not that much info on him. 
Um, but you have these three guys, these three officials that are kind of wrangling against Nehemiah. Now, they're essentially politicians, really, when you're, when you're thinking about it. And they didn't want the Jews to build up the walls. They didn't want the city to come back up. Now, what do we know about your house? Let's just go back to your house. If you leave your house doors and your windows open in the summer, what comes into your house? Quickly. Bugs. What else could come into your house? Quickly. Something bigger than a bug. What? Bees. What else? Thief. Yes. What else? Thief. Snakes. Rats. Rodents. You leave the doors open. Anything can come into there, right? That's what we're talking about, about Jerusalem. These guys were happy that there were no gates. These guys were happy that the walls were rubble. They were happy with the state of Jerusalem, this oppressed people, because it didn't matter who came into the city. They could walk in and take whatever it is that they wanted. They could impose whatever it is that they wanted. They were happy with the people in this lowly, depressed state. Leave your walls down. It's fine. Stay with the same baggage. It's cool. You don't really have to rebuild this. Just go out over there. Everything else will be just much more better. Really, do you have to come back to this decrepit city? What's the point? It's just going to get knocked down anyway. You don't have the materials. You don't have the resources. You don't have the people. Lies. You can't do it. You can't worship. You can't pray. You can't, you know, witness to your uncle or your brother or your sister. You can't speak truth to that person. Lie. You're not good enough. You're not holy enough. Lie. We can go down the list. It's all self-talk. These people had no power over him. He was appointed by the king. The king not only appointed him to go back and do this, but he sent him with his own, with captains of his army. He had, he had troops. As we look at this in the natural, we have to look at it in the spiritual, and we have to make it about us. I'm going to just keep saying that over and over, so it's fine. All right. When we look at these walls, when we look at this whole Nehemiah story, we see Nehemiah trying to go through one gate, and he can't because the rubble is so broken down that him on a donkey could not fit through. Right, So I don't know how big a donkey is, but it, he, the, the donkey couldn't get through. He had to get off of it to go outside and look at the walls. That's how decrepit and fallen and broken the city was. And here is this man watching all of this, seeing all of this, and saying, no, not my city, not the call that the Lord, I will stand, I will fight, I will plan. Because why? Because God said so. Because God sent me here. So let's, let's, let's just talk about and this is something that I identified with. Let's, you know, we're, we're talking about the 4th of July. Let's talk about civil rights. And I love this. I'm just going to give you a couple of speeches. Nothing crazy. Oh, that's the wrong one. Here we go. Let's go to Martin Luther. This is part of his I Have a Dream speech. Just listen to the words. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time in, to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism, now is the time to make the real promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. It's a buster call. Abraham Lincoln, this is part of his Gettysburg Address. It is for us, the living, rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they have fought here, have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us that, that, though, that from these honored dead 
we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain. That this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. So we know now, Nehemiah comes. He, he arrives at the city. He spends three days in the quiet. He goes at night so nobody else would see him to assess what is going on. He walks out of the city to get a different perspective, to look over and say, whoa. Immediately after that, we go to this. Oh, that's your homework, sorry. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in? How Jerusalem lies in waste and its gates are burned with fire? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach and I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. I was the king's cupbearer. I had never been sad in his presence before. And he looked at me and he said, why are you so sad? Because you're not sick. It's a sadness of heart. I was quickly afraid because I knew what could have happened to me. And I said back to the king, how can I be happy and sad when the land of my father's tombs lies in ruins? I quickly prayed again. The king said to me, well, what would you have me do? He's like, send me back. Send me back that I may build, rebuild the city of my home. I was emboldened when I spoke to him. And I said, also, send me with troops and con- uh, send me with conscripts that the governors would let me pass and get to Judah. Oh, and also, tell the guy that runs the forest, the staff, I'm going to need timber to rebuild my gates. And I said all of this to the king, and because the hand of the Lord was upon me, He did all that I asked. He did all that I asked. So they said, let let us rise up and build. And then they set their hand to this good work. That's the buster call. Now he did everything that he had to do. He says this little passage here, but then it says, and then I told them of the hand of my God, which had had been good upon me. All that I asked, they gave to me. It's a great little verse. I just want to share with you. And then I have a story. And that's it. Proverbs 21.1 The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. We have to understand the God that we serve is bigger than our politicians, whether we hear when we, you know, this is a, as this is a story about responding to the Lord, it's also about a story about responding to bad news. We see the news, it doesn't matter what channel you watch, it doesn't matter what side you, 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 your, your allegiance is on. When we hear bad news, are we going and praying about it? Are we submitting ourselves before the Lord and saying, Lord, change his heart. Be there, give us the right elected official. Are we praying into it, or are we just moaning about the same stuff everybody else moans? Because Our God says that he has the power to change everyone, all kings. These are only men. These are only voices. All right, I have a story for you. It's a personal story. Not really. My wife and my family are going to laugh at me, so it's all right. It's one of my favorite stories of all time. And I realize especially why Nehemiah ministers to me this came up. So I'm just going to get, I'm going to paraphrase it. I don't want to get all crazy. Uh, it's a children's story. So basically, there's this young man, and he wants to be a king. He wants to be the king of all the pirates. 
So as a young boy, he doesn't know who his father is, and he sets out to be the king of the pirates, and he goes out, and his goal, he repeats it every time he gets into a confrontation, I want, I'm going to one day be the king of all the pirates, of all the oceans. And he says, so he goes out and he travels, and he, he meets another young boy, and he helps him out, and he says, well, what's, what's your thing? He's like, well, I'm going to be the greatest swordsman that ever lived. And the story continues. He meets a, he meets a galley cook, um, and you know, in, in their interaction, he says, well, I'm going to be the greatest chef that ever lived. And as he keeps meeting these people, he finds people with like goals. All one can be the greatest in these different areas, and he brings them aboard his ship. He's collecting. He doesn't know he's collecting, but he's collecting. He finds an archaeologist who can read these, you know, weird, you know, I don't know, hieroglyphs. And she says, well, I'm going to read the, the, the hieroglyphs that no one else has ever read. And further along down the line. So one of the last things that he needs is he needs a navigator. Now, this poor little boy doesn't have many talents. He's not good at too much of anything, actually. He's awkward. He's clumsy. He's not very smart. He's not very bright. He just knows that he wants to one day be the greatest pirate in the world. So he meets this young lady who is captive to this other very, very evil pirate. Let's put it that way. And the pirate comes to fight all of the people that he's gathered. There's a huge fight that ensues, and they all get scattered. So the bad pirate says to the young pirate, I'm going to destroy you. And he starts beating him up. And, the, and he says, I'm going to destroy your crew. And with that, the pirate says, oh, no, you're not. So the pirate replies to him, like, what can you do? You can't lift a sword. You can't cook. You can't read. There's not too much you're good at at all. What good are you to your crew? And the young pirate looks back at him and he says, you're right. I can't do any of those things. You know what I can do? I can beat you. Goes on, he beats them. Beats the man. He stands on top of the rubble that ensues after the battle, and he looks up at the young navigator. Now, she has a choice. What was oppressing her is now defeated. And he says to her, will you come with me? I am your friend. I will always fight for you. Will you come with me on this adventure? Will you leave all that you've known, which is bondage, which is enough to get by, which is enough to be comfortable, which is enough to be okay. You know, at the end of her days, she died. She lived a nice life. Maybe he would let her marry one day. Will you leave all that? And she was conflicted. She didn't know. And eventually she said yes. And I think of that about Jesus. How he comes, he can do everything, of course. But he destroys our enemy and he invites us on an adventure. And our response to that adventure is the crux of where we are right now in the story of Nehemiah. We can stand in our, defeat, in our same place with our enemy defeated and repeat, repeat to ourselves, my enemy is defeated, I am free, but stay in the same land, living the same way. Or we can go with our captain. We can venture out and beyond into something much, much greater. That is the invitation. That is our Christian walk. And we have a choice on how our appetites will be filled. See, at the end of the day, and this is a conversation that I have with Kristen very, very often. You can ask her. What am I doing? I want more out of my life. If it ends tomorrow, 
I want more out of my life. I don't want more material things. I want more of a legacy. I want more of an adventure. I don't want to just get up every day and do the exact same thing, talk about the exact same things. I want an adventure. There is a difference to those of us that go and venture on an adventure with each other, go on a journey together, that whether you see each other in 10 years or 20 years, you can look across the way and nod because there is something that you guys have shared between the two of you. That is the invitation of our Christian walk. That is the invitation of body life. And back in the day, I wanted some crazy, crazy hikes. I would hike in the mountains. I'd been in thunderstorms, lightning bolts crashing around me. I will never forget the people that went along the way. They didn't like the adventure. I was leading them. It was actually a very bad trip. However, we made it out alive and I'm still here today, so that's a good thing. But I do feel as, as we're going into Nehemiah, as we're talking and sharing with each other, as we're being invited to break bread in the back and come together for a pool party and laugh, as we come on a Wednesday night to get prayer together, it's an invitation to keep going for more. How many people know what darkness is going on in you? How many people can speak into your lives? How many people can offer you and say, come, take an adventure with me? Hey, listen, I'm dealing with this. Come pray with me real quick. I need five minutes of your time. Let's go pray out in the street. How many people can you do that with? Is there something more that you feel that you're called to? Are you submitted to it? Will you say yes to it? We can stay where we are, on the shore, comfortable. The young pirate can sail away and say, I, I told you to come with me. Please come with me. Or we can jump in the boat and go for the adventure of our lives. Amen? I just told Naeem that I wanted to uh, take us to the table this morning. And uh, let me just ask you a question. There's probably a number of you here this morning. Maybe the, you run a company or you have your own business. Uh, you know, one of the first things I think someone does that takes leadership of any organization is um, you probably have and you probably speak with your staff about your mission statement. Where exactly does this organization want to go? The first thing a good leader does is give, is give vision to the people that are going to be working together. If one person is going, you know, if you're on a bus and one person thinks it's going to California and one thinks it's going to New York, we're going to have problems on that bus. So having the same vision is incredibly important. That's why it's so, in my estimation, so incredibly important for us to have vision about this. You see, so often we can start to just think that these are just like individual little stories and that... Uh, you know, we kind of like try to piece these things together and we're trying to understand like what exactly is going on and what does the New Testament have to do with the Old Testament? And Brothers and sisters, let's just remember something. We're made in the image of God. So let's just for a minute understand that he's the most intelligent creature 
that there ever could be. Do you think God is just haphazardly, just kind of getting through, you know, one generation after another, and he just wants people to be nice, and he wants people to know him and become Christians, and that's a good thing, and they, they should do nice things. They should feed the poor. They should do a lot of good things. But brothers and sisters, honestly, if we are a people that have no idea what's in God's heart, and we're kind of just, you know, we come to church, we, we come together, but we don't really have a clue where God, where God is going in history. Let me just tell you this. We talk a lot about the beginning of the Old Testament, right? Genesis, most of us know about it. But in these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, would you open that for me, honey? Now the Old Testament is really starting to talk to you about the end of the Old Testament. You see, now remember, quickly, we heard about it last week, we heard about it again, again this morning. The people of God, God started with un, one man, Abram. Then he had a family, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he had a nation. This nation of Israel was supposed to be the people who God used to, to present himself and show who he was to the whole world. They weren't going to be the only people that knew God, but they were going to be his vehicle. They disobeyed God. And so God warned them, if they disobeyed him, they would find themselves captives by their enemies. And that's exactly what's happened as we pick up the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. They're now captives. We've got to understand if now, now Jerusalem's been ruined. Jerusalem is in, in ruins. It's been burned, but God said he would put his name in this city. He would put his name in Jerusalem. He would build his house in Jerusalem. Well, then why don't we just, well, Jerusalem's burned. Let's go do something else. Let's go somewhere else and do it. God has his own purposes in this world, and they may be waylaid, but how many believe in this room that God's going to have his purposes accomplished? Right? Amen. So now Jerusalem's destroyed. It's burned. It's a disaster. His people are captives. Well, let me tell you something. You've got to get this temple done, and you've got to get Jerusalem fixed, because where do you think Messiah's going to come? Uh, that's right. Remember? This is the very land the Christ is going to be born. So there's, there's a purpose here. There's a purpose. There's a God who has a purpose. There is a God who is moving toward his purpose all the time. You may see some defeat in the word of God. You may see it get waylaid for a while, but you can, but you can rest assured that God's eternal purposes, that means where he was going from eternity past to eternity future, is never going to be waylaid. And if, you know what? If we're Christians that kind of don't get, like, What's eternity future going to be like? You know, it's very difficult to live a Christian life if it's just about, well, I go to church, I know the Lord, and someday I'll die, and I'll go to heaven, and I don't have a clue what's going to happen after there. You know, so I'm just kind of like, well, I don't know. We'll just leave that with God. Do you know what? <laughs> Did I just say that God's the most intelligent being in the world? How many would think that if you're a bright person and you've got a purpose and, and you're a moving toward that purpose, don't you think 
you want people to kind of get it, right? With me? Don't you think you want people who kind of know where you're going, what you're going to do? You know, you have a God, it says in Genesis that, that the Lord walked, he came in and visited Adam and Eve in the garden. Isn't that amazing? He visited them. But Nehemiah starts a prayer, and he says this, Oh, God of heaven, oh, God of heaven, hear us. Listen to me, saints. He doesn't want to be just God of heaven. Did you hear me? He doesn't want to be just God of heaven. And in a few weeks, one of these days real soon, I'm going to show you how Genesis and Revelation totally correspond to each other. Because in Genesis, he's walking in the garden, but in the Revelation, when it's all coming to an end, he lives in the midst of his people. The temple of God is no longer just stones and rocks. He is now living among a people in the Revelation. He is now God of heaven and God of earth. You see, God, for some reason that we don't understand, I can't explain it to you, he wants to live with human beings. He wants to live among human beings. What I see here is two different Christian lives. Let me tell you what I mean. You could have been a captive in Babylon, and even as Naeem said this morning, if you were a captive in, Na- in, in Babylon, you had a good life. That's where the Jews started synagogues. They had their own little worship. The Jews ascend everywhere they go, commercially. They started to become very successful. They didn't have to leave Babylon. They were comfortable there. They didn't need to go. But God started to stir the hearts of people and said, okay, okay, you've got what you want. You've got your homes. You've got your families. You even come and worship me. But I'm sending out a call, and this is the call. Who will care more for just their, not just their personal life and their personal getting what they want in the, them personally getting what they want in life. And who will care for me to get what I want? Did anybody hear me? I want to tell you that the birth of this church was birthed on these books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles, because in some little way, In 1975 or so, a few of us heard about this and heard, and God stirred our hearts. And we started to hear, and God stirred our hearts, and we started to hear a call that said, Will you let go of your own comfortable life and will you work with me that my purposes can be achieved in this world? Will you leave Babylon? And come and see my city, my, my purposes accomplished. Well, we're not building a literal building, are we anymore? Are we building a temple with stones anymore? Brothers and sisters, hang on with me. Because I want to tell you something. I'm going to be talking more about this stuff in the weeks to come. Because I want to tell you, if I didn't believe what I'm telling you right now, God is my judge. I never would have laid my life down for the last Almost, Joe and I would never be laying our lives down for 40 years as we have. Because we got a vision that you can live a personal Christian life and even be spiritual. 
You can be spiritual. You can know God. That's, you can be spiritual as a person, but there's something more in the Christian life, and that's this. God is building a people together. If you go in the revelation, what you see at the end is not a bunch of individual Christians, but you see a city which stands for interrelationships. What stands for... Uh, the city of God, it says the city, New Jerusalem, comes down out of heaven on the earth. That is where we're going. It's going to be a city that God is going to inhabit, and they're going to be people. I, I think there'll be different classes of people. I, I don't know. I, I don't want to get, get in trouble going here. But I want to tell you this. God today is looking for people who will build their lives together for a holy habitation for his spirit. And you know what? If you go in the Revelation, you see churches in the beginning. What are the names of the churches? Is it the First Baptist Church of uh, Memphis? Is it the Methodist Church? The only names you see in churches in the Revelation is that geographic. They're just Thyatira, Laodicea. What does that tell me? I'll tell you what it tells you. It tells you that God comes and calls people. Listen to me. Some of you are edgy. You've been sitting here a while. Please hang with me for a few minutes. I want to tell you something. What I'm telling you right now is one of the most important things you will ever hear. You'll make your decision one way or the other. But I'm telling you something that is not Sunday morning, you know, just... um, God wants to make you prosperous and healthy and well. God builds people together. This place that you're sitting in started with a little group of people in the early 70s that heard this voice that says God wants to build a people together. You know what that means? It means we're not just a bunch of individuals anymore. It means you've got to come and bring your gift and your function We've got to learn how to live together and walk together. That means we fight together in this church. That means we disagree with each other in this church. But it means that we believe in something higher. We believe that God is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And for those who hear this call and for those who will let God build them together for a habitation for his spirit that the world may say, you know what? There's something different about those people over there. I don't know what it is, but there's something different. They love each other differently. I don't know. You know what? There's black and white. There's men and women. There's old. There's young. I don't know. There's something different about that place. You, as, as the church, allows God to build it. We become a prophetic picture to the world of what is going to be in the day when Jesus sets his throne up in Jerusalem. All of the dividing walls that now divide people will no longer be there. I'm telling, what am I, what's my bottom line as we come to this table? This table isn't just about you coming individually to be blessed. It's not about you just coming to be healed or me either. It's about the fact that God wants people. He's looking for, uh, he's looking for a corporate. He's looking for that wall that was built was one family after another. It was the Joneses and the Smiths and the, and the, you, you name it. And I want to tell you something. God's highest plan in this generation is to build the local church. 
to build the local church. Do you hear me? It's not just an organization. It's not just we want to come together because we like each other. It's an organism. And this is the last thing I want to say when we go to the table. And I know I've talked over a lot of people's heads. But you know what? I'm coming to a conclusion. you got to talk over people's heads if you want to bring them up higher. And I don't know about you, but I don't want the Christianity I see all around me. I don't want to just give God my tithe and just, you know, come to church on Sunday. I want to know who he is and what he thinks. I want to know what moves his heart. I want to know God. And I want to be somebody that when I meet him in those last hours, I want him to say, well done, good and faithful service. You worked with me. You didn't work against me. Do you know how many Christians are going to find out in the end that they did good works, but it had nothing to do with God? Listen, he's not some far away somewhere, somewhere kind of like kind of an old man just rubbing his eyes. Just be good to each other, kids, will you? God has a purpose. He has a heart. And the people that left Babylon had their hearts stirred and said, I'm going to go and take that four months dangerous journey. There were thieves on the road. It was through a desert. Do you think it was fun for those people to leave Babylon and come to this broken down Jerusalem with burned walls and burned stones? And you think that was a, you think that was something they really wanted to do? Who in this room will say, I want to leave I want to leave my comfortable Christianity and build a house for God. I want, I want to be a part of building something that will last and eternal. You saw Naeem up here this morning. That's warfare. You know why? He's another generation who's picking up, who's picking up the, 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 the uh, mantle. Let me tell you something. I'm not interested in pro- just professional speakers to come in here. One of the things that the church has to recover is we're not just a bunch of, it's not just the clergy and the lady, the professional people, and then all the rest. God's people are God's people. You've got a function, and you've got a calling, and you've got a gifting, and God needs every one of us on the wall. And the devil will do anything to get you off the wall. I often said this. I told you it's the last thing I want to say, and I'm going to really try it. One of my greatest teachers said this, T. Austin Sparks. He said this. He said, the church is either a bouquet of cut flowers or it's a plant. You know what a plant means? You've all got the same life. You're flowing in the same life. Cut flowers, you're all different. You're separate. You look pretty in a vase. The real church is an organism, brothers and sisters. It's not an organization you join. It's a life you enter. And a plant goes through seasons together. It goes through winter. It goes through summer, spring, fall. And you know what happens in winter in churches? People say, ah, this church is dead. I don't know. You know what? You know what? I don't even think the, I don't even think the spirit's here anymore. I'm going somewhere else. Yeah, let's, let's try somebody else. And you know what? They go to a church that's in summer. And they say, now this is what I'm talking about. Until that church goes through a winter. I'm saying that there's one life. And I'm really stepping out now to tell you this. I'll tell you one thing. I wouldn't have laid my life down, and neither would Joe, for a vase with cut flowers. I can walk into a church, and sometimes, by the grace of God, I can immediately tell whether there are a bunch of individuals or whether there's one life going on there. I hope and pray that that's one of the reasons why people walk into this place and say, 
I don't know. There's love there. I don't know. They're like a family. I can't put my finger on it. I hope and pray that that's, maybe that's not the words they have, but maybe, God, if you're, if, if I'm right, God, maybe I want to take it. I want to believe that that's because it's your one life in this place. I want to believe that it's God telling us, some of us here have heard the call and laid our lives down for this. Someday we'll find out if it's been, it's been as much God as I hope it has. This is what I want you to, this is what I want to leave you with at the table. I know it's, I've kept you too long. Sorry to jump off and, and, and do this after Naeem, but I, I almost pulled the mic out of James's hand last week, last Sunday, because these books are so precious to me. I would never, never have laid my life down to see Jesus get his church if I didn't have some glimpse that there's an individual Christian life and then there's the building of the church. Who will build the church? Who will submit to each other? That means you that means you collide. It means sometimes God puts you next to somebody, a stone next to you that you can't, you really don't get along with, but you gotta rub, you gotta get, you gotta rub each other. Because you have a vision that there is a God. He's not some, like I said, he's not off somewhere unaware. He's the Lord of the church. Do you know how many churches are just human beings trying to decide what to do? That's not the church. The church is people who are in touch with God by his spirit and are building along with him. You can come up for the table. If, Ni- if, if Nehemiah and Ezra and Zerubbabel, and the thousands of people that left Babylon, had they not risked their lives, had they not responded to God, then tell me what God would have done. What would have happened? What Jerusalem would there be for Jesus the Christ to ever come to? Brothers and sisters, I'm looking for, because I think God's looking for, men and women in this place and at this hour, want to know God's heart, want to know church history enough to know where is this thing called the church going? I just want to ask you as you come to this table, this table is about, this bread is my body, not just his physical body, but this bread represents the body of Christ. If you have never committed yourself not only to Jesus Christ as Lord, but to giving yourself to him to say, Lord, I give myself to you for the building of your church, for your purposes in my, in my lifetime. Brothers and sisters, if you're running around and you're talking about justification by faith, we already had that. That was Martin Luther. If you're running around and saying, we need to be sanctified, well, that was Wesley. If you're running around and saying, well, you know, water immersion is very important, well, that's what the Anabaptists. In other words, God's recovering his truths and recovering his truths, and you've got to live in the generation of what is he doing in your generation. 
Not what he did five generations ago. What is he doing today in our generation? Don't you want to work with him? Don't you want to be a part of what he's doing now to see him get his, see him get his eternal purposes accomplished? Well, Father, these things are way over our heads and certainly over mine. But, Father, today and this morning, even as James started last week, we've heard your clarion call to come and understand that you, behind history, you are the God who has a purpose and you are a God who is moving. You're a God who is working in your people and you have, an, you have a, a place you're going. You're not haphazard. Father, as we come to this table, Lord Jesus, that you died to provide for us. We hold up this bread today and we remember that you called us not to be just individuals, but to be people, to be part of your body, hands and feet, head, uh, eyes and mouth and ears. And Lord, we come to this table today and say, we ask you, how are we doing individually with our relationships in this place? How are we doing with the, with the woman or man that really gives us a bad time in this church? The, the one that we really really don't like the one who hurt us the one who offended us lord you're looking for us to have reality not only with you but with one another in this place you're looking for a real family your family here so father i pray that despite my inadequate words your call to give our lives to the building of the your church your people the city on a hill, the place where people can look at and say, there's something different. Lord, we pr I pray that there'll be some people in this room today that won't hear my words, but they'll hear, they'll hear yours. So, Father, we take this bread today that represents your body and say, Lord, may you get in this place your heart let your heart be satisfied in this place, Lord. And let there be men and women who leave Babylon today, in this day, just like they did so many years ago, to see to it that you've got your temple, to see to it that the walls went up around the city. May you get men and women like that today. And, Lord, we don't forget in this wine, in this juice, we don't forget the price you paid to get a bride who loves you the price you paid to get a city where you will be the light and that city will be Lord the people who have loved you and served you Lord you paid dearly to get your heart's desire get it and get it in us Lord in Jesus name Amen Amen Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.